Hello, hello. You found us again on Boomerangs. This is Ruth. And this is Mike. We have a number of subjects to talk about today. Some of them have to do with QAnon. Some of them have to do with the Academy Awards. So I think we're just going to jump into it. Should we talk QAnon? Sure. You have thoughts. Well, we're talking about the HBO documentary called Q. Into the Storm. Q Into the Storm. I watched it. (laughs) I was so bored. I mean, (laughs) these people that it's talking about are so vapid. And to me, what it really, I mean, I only watched the first episode, so maybe things will liven up. But to me, it just shows that social media has created a class, an intellectual class of people who mistake postings that people put on Facebook or whatever platform for relevant information. They take BS and they take it seriously. So this shows a bunch of people who do that. And it's, I don't know. Well, my sense of it was that these are low information voters, mm-hmm. for one thing. But they're and fascinated that, by this yes. fluff that's meaningless. Somebody, whoever Q is, whatever, mm-hmm. whoever Q is, found a way. And this is what I'm looking for in this docu-series. They found a way to convince people that there is a deep state mm-hmm. and that that deep state is made up of people who are in the government and in mm-hmm. Hollywood and that they literally sacrifice babies. Mm-hmm. They sacrifice babies and sex traffic children. Right. Somehow they made that case very, very convincing. And I heard one woman who was very intelligent. I just got clued into the idea that children were being sex trafficked Mm -hmm. and I couldn't stand the idea of it. And that's how she went down that rabbit hole Mm -hmm. because there was some secret sex traffic ring. It's one of those things like when you listen to Rabbit Hole, where did that person end up going? I don't know. He was this Internet sensation. Maybe it's my age. Wasn't it surprising that they all the people that are into QAnon and into the whole conspiracy world? They're thing, boomers. boomers. They're, well, they didn't look like boomers, but they said they, they were targeting boomers. That's who their target audience was. See, yeah. I, I can't understand how boomers would have any interest because we don't even understand what those message boards <laughs> are. You know, H now now. I don't think it takes much to get onto it. And boomers have a lot of time because we're retired. retired. That's the connection that I made. It's just so weird to me. I don't understand how so many people could be so greatly concerned about who is Q and what is Q's message and who is the fake Q and who is the real Q and how is Q going to speak this week and what's he going to say and these little phrases and how interesting that Trump's tweets come out just two minutes after QAnon's. Right. Posts come out. Right. And- I think they're looking for what we talk about a lot. They're looking for connection to something. They're looking I to be connected so. to something with a higher purpose. And that purpose is for a lot of them, I think, saving children. I mean, that's what that one woman, the one with the blonde hair. Yeah, that's what her entry point was. They made a really good point. They showed a, even a graphic of an old cartoon from like hundreds of years ago that was anti-Semitic and that was showing Jews drinking yes. blood from a baby. That's where I'm not so sure it's about their concern for children as it is about their anti-Semitism or their anti... It's another group of people that's disaffected because America's not white anymore. That anti-Semitism is the basis for QAnon. That is where that starts. That's why I, I think when they say they're concerned about babies or children or sex trafficking, I'm not so sure that they're being honest. That's maybe a fig leaf for their conspiracy theory. See, I think it's based in anti-Semitism or its roots are in anti-Semitism, but Hillary Clinton is not Jewish and neither is Tom Hanks. Right. And most of the people, most of the figures that they've said are in the deep state Mm -hmm. are not Jewish 
figureheads. I mean, otherwise it would be Benjamin Netanyahu. And I mean, right. it would be people who we would identify as Jewish. And it's subtler than that. And it's evolved mm-hmm. away from just anti-Semitism. But that is what its roots are. I have a feeling they're just they're mega racists basically. Yeah. And, and they're vehemently that and they don't give a shit about children. They just like to use that story to demonize people in government who they see as their enemies, because those are people like Hillary Clinton who yeah. are in favor of a more diverse and fair and multicultural and multiracial nation. That's good. I like that. I think that's well said. I think you're right. Here's what I know about the beginnings of QAnon. It was originally on something called... I think it was 4chan. 4chan, And that was developed by the man who has this brittle bone disease who lives in the Philippines. And he was living here in the States. Okay. Now, there was a father and son duo. They were in the Philippines. They were not Filipino, but they were Mm -hmm. in the Philippines. And Mm -hmm. they had him move there to oversee 4chan. Mm-hmm. Now, at a certain point, the message boards blew up and Frederick, I don't remember his last name, the man with the brittle bone disease, yeah. decided that he did not want to be part of it anymore. So he took 4chan down altogether. Oh, OK. And then the father and son somehow, I don't, I'm not saying that they did it, but right. they found a way to create this 8chan, right. which was then the platform that really got Q off the ground. There was another expose that was a podcast, a show called Reply All. They did a deep dive on it and they did a much more elegant job of deciphering it than this docu-series mm-hmm. is doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in the context of these actual true stories of internet intrigue and treachery like Snowden and Lassange and all these people. So yeah. there is this culture of the internet as a means of doing criminal or detective work or, you know, it's like- yeah. It's a, it's a big mystery. So maybe these people are just drawn to it in that sense. But I just wish they had a hobby or something to do besides looking at these posts all the yes. time. Yes. Well, a lot of what I heard on the sex trafficking thing is that a lot of people in QAnon are women mm-hmm. and they're middle aged women mm-hmm. who are obsessed with this enterprise that's going on. Right. And that they literally stay up day and night going down these rabbit holes looking for the truth, which will right. never be found because right. it's not not real. Right. But they become obsessed with the idea of saving children. Wow. And that's not necessarily everybody, but that's yeah. a big faction of it. Sounds Russian to me. It sounds like it reminds me of pre-2016, you know, with all these memes being broadcast all over Facebook, hot button things that press people's, you know, yeah. instinctive buttons. Yes. And it sounds but, like psychological warfare that's being actually being well done because obviously there's a lot of people that, that are in this, right? A lot of people. I mean, a lot of people who were involved in the Capitol rampage mm-hmm. were QAnon supporters. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There are all kinds of factions that believe mm-hmm. in Q. A lot of them had Q flags and Q T-shirts and were clearly followers. Like as far as the Venn diagrams, I'm not sure that the Proud Boys are Q supporters. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure that the Oath Keepers Mm -hmm. are QAnon people. Mm -hmm. They could just be living out some patriot fantasy of their own. Yeah. Um, Some some paramilitia fantasy that they've got going on. Right. It's a weird old world out there. Mm -hmm. What else are we going to talk about? Oh, I know what I wanted to talk to you about. Post-COVID world opening up. Oh, yeah. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I was listening to the Slate Culture Fest. Oh, right. And 
and they were talking about specifically the first thing that they mentioned was the anxiety that people had about losing their morning routines and yes. not wanting to have to get up at the crack of dawn, yes. put on a suit, yes. make that commute to their offices. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought of you. I know. I'm just dreading going back to work in that sense. I'm not dreading going back and being around people. I think that'll be really nourishing to my soul and to all, all of ours. But I've just become so fond of my coffee making ritual in the morning and that I can do it, <laughs> uh, you know, at my own pace. But like you said, well, I, could, I could do it at work. If I have to go to work early, like I used to, I'll just find a way to do my coffee ritual there. Does it comfort you at all to know that there are so many other people who are feeling the yes. same way? Well, anything that makes me feel like I'm even near the mainstream makes me <laughs> makes me feel safe. <laughs> yes. Well, I like knowing that I'm normal in some ways. I don't know how to value the listeners to Slate Plus. I would say that they're probably to the left of the mainstream, but yeah. they have some mainstream in them, yeah. amongst them. It's interesting. I was listening to them talk about how, you know, what you would do in a normal day. You get up, take a shower, get in your car, drive to work, have meetings, go out at lunch and get right. your dry cleaning and, mm -hmm. you know, then run back and then have more meetings. And this one woman, Dana Stevens, said... I just can't imagine doing that level of work anymore. I can't either. The traveling, I, the traveling I used to do, I don't know that I could do it again. Like my commute to work's not horrible. It's eight and a half miles. And in rush hour, when I go, I go early rush hour. And I, I think it takes me 40 minutes each. Oh, that's uh, a long time. And that's on a good day. That's when the traffic's oh, moving. Really? That's when the traffic's moving. Wow. I mean, with no in the midday, it would be 20 minutes. So it's it's double okay. the time. But then, <laughs> as you were pointing out, then there's like leave work, go to the gym in rush hour traffic, go across town to go to a meeting or see friends or something. I'd spend an hour in the car going yeah. from Westwood to Silver Lake. And I'd like no big deal. And then drive home from there. I just don't know that I want to spend so many hours in a car anymore. I wonder if that will change our culture. Would you ever take a bus so that you could read and do other no. things? Okay. I, I used to take the bus to work, but the problem with LA is to get to the bus, you need a car unless yeah. you just happen to live near a bus. You know, there aren't that many That's buses. That's true, the subway also, or you have to take a bus to the subway. <laughs> right. I would, I have no excuse because I have one of the best You're routes. well located. Yeah. I am very, I'm a block from one of the most active R routes right. in the city. Right. And those buses come every five minutes. Yeah. So yeah. I really don't have any excuse. I used to take the bus before I had a car. Now yeah. I have a car. So I drive to the places that I used to take a bus to. Yeah, I've become very comfortable not going to the gym. And that's part of why I drive to work is so that when I leave work, I can go to the gym because to do all of that on a bus is a lot of coordination that's and a lot of waiting no. for buses. But now and I agree that, you know, doing the bus is better environmentally, if nothing else. And you can sit and you don't have to pay attention to the roads. So you can read whatever. But I don't know the time spent in moving from one geographical spot to another. We were so acceptable. I don't know how how we're going to go back. You know, I don't know either. And I don't know that people are willingly going to go back. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to fight I, it. <laughs> I know that. But you probably would. It sounds like what you were saying was you would benefit from being in the physical location of your office. Right. Sometimes. Some. Some I need us. a hybrid. I'm, I'm going to lobby for a hybrid solution. And what but would your ideal be if that were the case? One to two days a week in the office. 
That like, sounds like have an doable. office day, you know, an office day, maybe Fridays, because that's when we used to have meetings. So Fridays, I could be in the office, something like that. But I yeah. also know my employer's very conservative. It's so funny to work at like this progressive university. And yet on a HR level, they're very traditional. So I don't know that they'll be open to any kind of solutions along those lines. But we, but we will see. I would be surprised if on a staff level, like the professors have to come in. Right. You can't go to forever teach. having right. Zoom right. classes. So they have to come in to teach. That means a certain number of the support staff need to be there as well. Right. But do they need to be there every day? I don't know. I don't think so. They may be conservative where you work. At the same time, there was a human cost to that kind of commute mm -hmm. and travel yeah. and a certain amount of inefficiency. And an environmental cost as well. As well. Think about it. If people had three-day work weeks, how much would that save as far as pollution? Yeah. It may make up for all the cows. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but like I, I at least or, or just I would like to stagger hours so I could work from home from eight to ten. And then drive in when I can get to work in 20 minutes and yeah. work work from 10 to 5 in on, on site. I would be surprised and I could be surprised, but I guess I really would be if there wasn't some amount of flexibility that we've learned to live with in this telecommuting world. Well, I think the, the more aware employers will certainly be receptive to finding new ways of being yeah. at work, what, redefining what being at work means. Something that I meant to mention beforehand was this woman, Sarah Everard in England, was walking home one night, I believe it was March 6th, 933 mm -hmm. at night. She got off her subway stop and disappeared. And she was found two days later murdered. It turned out that she had been accosted by a policeman mm -hmm. named Wayne Cousins, and he killed her. Something about maybe the fact that she was sort of in the full bloom of life. She was 33 years old. She was lovely. Friends had only great things to say about her. Maybe something about her in particular made this just a bridge too far for right. women in England. And demonstrations ensued over the anger of someone walking home at night. And I'd say walking while female was the reason she was killed. Right. Last night, I asked you if you felt fear when you walked out of the house at, at night, if you felt fear that you might be kidnapped, raped or killed. Not in my neighborhood. There are other places that might, but not right here. If I walked out in your neighborhood at night and walked around the block, I would be afraid that I would be yeah. accosted and, yeah. and that something bad would happen to me. Right. And that's what those women were demonstrating against. Right. The burden of it's the woman's fault. She shouldn't have been walking home at night. She should have been with someone else, blah, blah, blah. And the women who were demonstrating said, why aren't the men responsible? Mm -hmm. Why aren't the men trained not to treat women as objects? Mm -hmm. Why isn't that happening? And I support that. I mm -hmm. think it's up to men not to see women as objects. Mm -hmm. I may have mentioned this before, but Margaret Atwood said that she had approached a professor when she was teaching women's studies. And she said to this male professor, she asked the question, what is it that men are afraid of? They're stronger than women. They're usually richer than women. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of power over women. Why do you think they treat women as if they are afraid of them? And this man said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. So that was his answer. 
She went back to her female studies group and said to her class, what are you afraid of when it comes to men? And the women there were afraid that the men would kill them. I thought that said it very succinctly. I wanted to talk about the movie that we saw last night. And we have to explain that because we're both vaccinated, we got together at your place to watch. Maskless. Masklessly. We mm-hmm. got to hug. Mm-hmm. That yep. was a year's worth of not hugging. Yep. That was amazing. And we watched, I think it's just called Promising Young Woman with Carrie Mulligan. One thing I meant to mention, I didn't want to interrupt the film while we were watching it, but the woman who played Carrie Mulligan's boss, the black woman. Oh, yeah. Is one of the most famous transgender women in the world. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. She was on Orange is the New Black. Oh, okay. She became a huge star in that show. She's wow. a wonderful actress. But in Orange is the New Black, the producers wanted to show a flashback to her before she had transitioned because she has fully transitioned by the time she gets incarcerated in the Oh, in Orange in is the New Black. Mm-hmm. So they found out that she has an identical twin brother. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he played her? He played her. Oh, how fun. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Wow, that's intense. I know. <laughs> I know. Wow. So not to get off the track, but I thought I would share that little snicklet with you. Yeah. Interesting. Well, she was the she was definitely the diversity in there. It was very heterosexist. Very white. And very, very white. Very white. Yeah. I was thinking about that more afterwards, not so much while we were watching it, but I thought, gee, you know, that's a very heteronormative plot line. But so be it. Yes, it was kind of shockingly white, I thought. Yeah, but I think possibly that's the world she wanted to expose. Like I said, I kept thinking Maybe. of Brett Kavanaugh through the whole movie because it, it seemed to be a, a justified attack on that sort kind of, of behavior. Frat, frat boy c- culture. I agree with you on the Brett Kavanaugh front. Mm-hmm. I want to say that in relation to the movie last night, which has spoilers that I don't want to get into. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that it, whatever the opposite of misogyny is, that movie was that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what that movie was about. It was about right. a woman who hates men, she who does... hates men for being men. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's where I cut her some slack is that it's based in factual behavior. She's yes. angry because of yes. a thing. It's not just kind of a amorphous, unconscious I hate men thing going on in her head. She's yes. she has her reasons, I guess, is what makes her a kind of a redeemed character in a certain sense. That's true. She does have her reasons. She's dirty Harry. She's she's out for justice, you know. Yes. She'll, she'll yeah. break the law to to get it. And put herself in very, very yeah. vulnerable positions That's right. to get it. I can't say that I liked the movie and the ending for me, which I won't go into. Mm-hmm. I question it. Because I don't know, I I just question the ending. Mm -hmm. But as far as being able to illustrate female rage, I think it did it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think where it's really a good movie for our time is, I was saying, it's post Me Too. It goes beyond Me Too to what if roles were different? What if women exercised personal power over men the way men have traditionally done it over women. What if the tables were, it was kind of a a morality play in a way. It was like, what if the tables were turned? What if women were the manipulators and men were the victims? What would that look like? Yeah, very much so. And the fact is each man believes that he's innocent. 
Each mm-hmm. man believes that he's a good person. You know, there's another aspect of it that I, I'm just noticing now that I really like. There's a lot in this movie about people saying, well, yes, that was a bad thing that happened, but it was so long ago. Just let it so go. So long ago, yeah. And you can remove that from the whole male-female thing. It's just there's something in our culture of like, if you're done an injustice, you need to let it go. And I get that. And we do need to let those things go when we're ready because we, we have to keep growing. But I liked that the movie made it okay to at least for that character. So it made it okay for us as an audience to consider maybe there are certain things we don't get over and maybe that's okay. Especially speaking to the Brett Kavanaugh Mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. Certainly that was said about that. It was so long ago. Right. He was a teenager. He wasn't even in college. Yes. He wasn't really responsible for. And look at the great career he has now and you'd be ruining it. You'd be ruining this, yeah. this great man. That's why I, uh, yeah. I wonder, yeah. I'd love to talk to, did she write it too? Or Yeah, she did. I'd love to know if she was inspired at all by the whole Kavanaugh trial, trial whatever, Kavanaugh hearings, because there was so much of that. And so I love that that was a, it really took that mindset and, Piece of uh, it. Yeah. and really opened it up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The more we talk about it, the more, I realize that it, it almost has to have had some Kavanaugh in it, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Because there's so much overlap in the inciting incident. Yeah. So much overlap that it's funny because I didn't think about it until you mentioned it afterward. I thought of him right away as soon as it started to veer into that thing. Because there was so much about reputation in it as well. Yes. Uh, it wasn't just about the male-female conflict. It was also about the entitlement of men to their reputations. That's a really, really good point. Mm-hmm. The entitlement of men to, well, the entitlement of men to women's bodies. Wow, that's deep. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could spoil the movie because I I would love to talk to you about the end, but I I dasn't. I dasn't. Well, I'm going to watch an episode of Schitt's Creek tonight just to to get the heaviness off of me. (laughs) David, David. (laughs) Speaking of accents, I'm going to send you something and I'm going to recommend this to our podcast listeners, if you need a laugh, it's called An Irish Family Tries to Get a Bat Out of Their House. Oh, my God. And I'm going to send it to you. And it is an accent palooza. But <laughs> mostly it's one man saying, Danny, Danny, get the bat. Get the bat. <laughs> but I, I will send it to you when we're done. Which Damn. we are. We're out of time. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're way over. Okay. We're way over. So now we have to say goodbye to our book. I was so fascinated by my own conversation that I didn't even notice. (laughs) It just flew by. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Good night. Well, that's it. Get vaccinated, boomers. Get your shots. And we will talk to you again in a week. So long. Bye-bye.